Psalm 16. Psalm 16 has 11 verses. So Psalm 16, verses 1 through 11. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my, cho my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for the joy it is to know you, our God, who is our refuge. God, our prayer is in these moments we have together as we allow our hearts and our minds to settle on you and on your word, our prayer is that your Holy Spirit would do a powerful and transformative work in our hearts, that you would lay bare to us what is true and show us what we must believe and how we can act on that faith. We pray, God, that as we look at your word in Psalm 16 this morning, you would show us your son Jesus and him raised from the dead, and you would fill us with hope of life with him forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. These few summer months, we're working our way through the uh, few selected psalms, and this morning we're, of course, in Psalm 16, and as we have just finished over the course of uh, a few other months, a study in the book of Luke, Psalm 16 becomes an important psalm in the book of Luke because Psalm 16 is one that appears a couple of different times in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, of course, is the companion book to the book of Luke. And when we get to that section of this psalm, we're going to take just a few minutes to look at how the authors or how the apostles during the book of Acts viewed this particular psalm and how consistent it is with what David was writing when he recorded this psalm himself. Now, something we're used to nowadays is something you might call a referral. So if you use somebody for a particular kind of business, that business might ask you, hey, if you really liked the uh, service you got here at this particular store, you know, let us know. Send, a, send some friends down here, and if your friends uh, tell us a, that, they, that you sent them down here, we'll give you a discount, or we'll give you a coupon, or we'll give you a punch card, or something like this. Now, the best kind of referral for any business isn't an involuntary referral. That is, it's uninvited. So this happens when maybe you and someone else go to a new restaurant and you have a meal and, and it changes your life. You've been to that kind of restaurant. You eat this meal and you say, I have not lived before today. My life today is the beginning of my life because I have had this meal. So you have this tremendous meal. Who knows what it might be for you? And then what you do is the next time you see a good buddy of yours, you say, you got you to try out this new joint. I just had a meal there. It changed my life. I'm a believer now. I got saved having eggs and toast, whatever it might be. That's ridiculous. But you give that, and, and this happens from time to time, whether it be a new restaurant you visit or a new a device you purchase or a new piece of equipment in your, your home entertainment system or, or maybe a new car you bought and it's got some feature you've never heard of. Or maybe a, a new tool in your shop. It does the same thing the old tool does. It just does it newer. And so when you get this, you tell your friends, you're like, look, look what I got. This is incredible. And, and you say, this is amazing. This thing is, is really, really good. And what Psalm 16 is for David, it is that about God. So he's had ex an experience with God. And he says, this is, this is unbelievable. I've got I've to let people know 
about the goodness of God. And this isn't merely a theological treatise. He didn't just sit down one day and just say, okay, I've got to come up with a song. We don't have a song this weekend for church, so I'm going to write up a song and try and get people. This is an outward expression of something that was incurring his heart. He had had an encounter with God, and he said, this is incredible. And, and it's him saying, I've got to tell people about the goodness of God. And that's what we're going to look at at this psalm, is the goodness of God as described by David in this poem. The first thing we're going to recognize from David in the first four verses of Psalm 16 is the goodness of God because God himself is a treasure. David is going to describe the goodness of God because, because he sees God himself as a treasure. Now imagine if this happened to you, if you encountered maybe a newly married couple. They've been married a few months and you go up to them and talk to them and say, well, how are things going? And What's it like being married? And they're just, you know, they're still gleeful and all these sorts of things. And, and then you turn to the husband and say, you know, what do, what do you think? Now that you've been married for a while, what do you really look forward to in your life and relationship with uh, your new wife? And the husband gets a big grin on his face and a twinkle in his eye. And he says to you boldly and loudly, it's her money. <laughs> she really comes from a very, very wealthy family. I come from a very, very, very poor family. And her, her family was kind enough to leave to her a trust fund of profound investments. And the monthly income that we gain from these significant investments far surpasses anything I could have ever earned. And I'm really grateful to have the opportunity in this new marriage to be able to spend money in a way I never have before. I'm going to enjoy things I couldn't have imagined enjoying. That I really, really love about my wife is that she, that she is rich. I mean, wouldn't you be offended by that? I mean, even that this is a pretend story. This didn't happen to me because I don't know people like that. Uh, but if somebody said this, wouldn't you want to smack the guy upside the head? To give him the opportunity to turn the other cheek? You want to, it's called discipleship. It, that's offensive. David here is saying his relationship with the Lord is not like that at all. What David is saying about his relationship with the Lord, he is so confident in the Lord. He is so confident in the Lord is, is if all he had was the Lord. If all he had was the Lord alone, he would still consider his life a good life. Then when asked about his relationship with the Lord, what do you love about the Lord, David? David's answer is just the Lord. That if all I had was the Lord and nothing else, I would still consider my life a good life. Let's look at how David describes it. Look at verses 1 and 2 where he basically gives us the whole point for Psalm 16. He starts in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So David here is expressing his confidence in the Lord. God is the one in which he finds safety and rest. And this is important to recognize because David is a king and he's a conquering king and he's a powerful king and he is a wealthy king. But finally, at the end of the day, the reason he has a place of refuge and rest is not because of his wealth, power, might, or importance. It's because he has the Lord to take refuge in. And it's not merely here in the context of this psalm, a place of safety. We might not, he, we would ordinarily think of maybe this is like a stronghold where you go to hide from danger. No, this is David describing it as the Lord, the place where he goes to refuel, rest. That's his refuge, his place. Nowadays, maybe when we think about work, sometimes we think, I'm going to work hard all weekend so that on the weekend I can enjoy the things I enjoy doing. And so what we do is the weekend becomes our refuge. This is the place where I get to do some rest, and I get to choose the activities that I enjoy, and I can refuel. David is saying that's the Lord to him, the place where he goes to leave the grind of life and find uh, being sustained and finding hope and finding rest and refuge, the Lord is that for him. It's the place he goes for Sabbath and contentment. The Lord is his refuge, his place of rest. And he says in verse 2 exactly what he thinks uh, of the Lord, and it's the point of the whole psalm, really. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And in David's life, he has a lot of good things in his life. And what he is saying here is God is the best good thing. He's not th saying that there's nothing else good in his life. He has been blessed uh, with lots of kids, and he has been blessed with lots of money. He's been blessed with lots of political power and success. 
He has been blessed with tremendous military uh, success. He has not been blessed with great kids. Uh, he has lots of them, uh, but some of them are a little sideways. Several of them are a little sideways. And so he has been blessed with a lot, but what he says, I have no good apart from God. So let me, let, let's try to think about what he is saying. Is he is saying is this. He says, God is so good. If all I had was God, he's enough. So these other things are good, but if I didn't have God, they would not be good enough. That's what he's saying. So all this other stuff is good, but in the absence of God, these other things will not be enough for me. However, if I have God, I don't need any of these other things to be okay. And really what we're going to see as we think about the life of David, what he's going to say, the goodness of the things he has in his life are good not because of what they are. They are good because of where they came from. The reason he finds blessing in where he is in his life is because those things were an expression of God's goodness. So Psalm 16, David is settling his heart on the goodness of God. He is such a treasure that in contrast to the Lord, all the rest of his stuff, in his life, whatever he might describe as blessing is less than God. He is not saying I do, he doesn't want those things. And when he loses those things, he mourns them. But what he is saying is if I have God, I have enough. If I don't have God, I will never have enough. And he is admitting that. And this is the goodness of God because God is a treasure. Look at verses 3 and 4. He describes further not just his relationship with God and the goodness of his relationship with God, but further, how that relationship with God affects his relationships with the people around him. He contrasts here two different kinds of people in the land of Israel. The first kind in verse 3 are people who are similar to David. They find their delight in the Lord and the goodness of God himself. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. On the other hand, there are also those in the land who do not delight in the Lord. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So what David says is when he identifies with somebody else, a lot of times when we meet somebody new, we're looking for things we have in common. And, and we, what he says is when I have commonality with somebody in delighting in the Lord, this is someone whose heart I am connected with. This is someone that I have a commonality that surpasses all other commonalities. And this is someone that uh, no matter what comes, I want to be connected to. So he looks at the, the people around him. Those who with him see eye to eye on who is good, who is great. It is the Lord. And he says of these people, these are my people. These are like me. They treasure God. I delight in them. And that is the connection we have. This is far surpasses any other connection, whether you root for the same uh, football team or whether or not you went to the same college or whether or not you come from the same hometown or whether or not you have the same vocation or the same values in terms of how the world should operate. All of these things are secondary or third or fourth or shouldn't even matter. What David does is when he sees someone, he says, what I want to have in common with you is our delight in the Lord. And David had lots of people around him that he had commonality with. He had people around him who were valiant warriors like he is. He was a mighty and powerful warrior. And he had lots of people. He had uh, warriors around him who were valiant and mighty. Uh, one guy around him that was a pretty tough hombre, a guy named Joab. Joab was a bad dude. He liked to murder people, and he was good at it. And Joab said, what, what do I have in common with you, sons of Zariah? We don't have the Lord in common, sons of Zariah. But there's another guy in David's uh, arsenal, his mighty men, and he was a guy who David had something in common with, this guy named Benaiah, who loved the Lord and was powerful to the Lord, and he went and killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. What? I, did you hear what I said? <laughs> I wouldn't kill a lion in the open on a sunny day. And you say, well, why did he kill a lion in a pit on a snowy day? It was snowy out, so he went into a pit, found the lion, killed it. I don't know why, but that's not even his coolest thing in my view. He also killed a giant Egyptian, not a miniature Egyptian, not an average-sized Egyptian, not a slightly oversized Egyptian. 
he killed a giant Egyptian, and all Benaiah had was a club. So what he did is he took the spear right out of that Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. This guy is tough. But what did David have in common with Joab? Nothing. What do you and I have in common, sons of Zariah? What did David have in common with Benaiah? A delight in the Lord. So David had lots of commonalities with lots of people, but when he saw somebody, what he delighted in was the commonality they had in saying, we treasure the Lord above all else. And all else that might come is only good to the degree that that good comes from the Lord's hand. And he had this, that, that joy. This is where that relationship comes within the people of God. On the other hand, he had people in his life that he knew that pursued other gods. And he said, sorrows will run after those who pursue other gods. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. I will not take the names of these other gods on my lips. Now, this drink offering of blood, the, the worship of the Jewish people at the temple or the tabernacle never involved a drink offering of blood. They did pour out drink offerings, but it was of wine. And they would pour that out. But the blood of the animal that was sacrificed was either poured out at the base of the altar or some of the blood every year was used uh, to be taken into the, uh, on the Day of Atonement into the judgment seat. But it was never a drink offering poured out. And the reason it wasn't is because the Jews were forbidden from consuming the blood of the animal. That was something they were not to consume. And so it wasn't a drink offering poured out because you only pour out a drink offering of things that you drink. And the, and the Jews would would never do this. David did, in fact, pour out a different kind of drink offering. One day he was stuck in a cave and he said to himself, oh, I wish I had water from my favorite well in Bethlehem. Haven't you ever done that before? You stay at somebody's house, maybe you live in Medford and you have Medford City water, which is, in my opinion, the best water on planet Earth. No, I'm serious. I have an opinion on this. It's just never better. Maybe you're staying at somebody's house who has the the burden of having a well. And many of you have a well, and I'm not trashing it. I'm just saying it tastes like mineral water, it, because it is. And, uh, and so you drink the, the mineral water, maybe lithia water. Have you had that, uh, rotten egg stuff? You drink it, and what do you say? Oh, I wish I was back in Medford. <laughs> and I could have a glass of water filtered through Mount McLaughlin and bursting forth from the earth at Big Butte Springs. What delicious water. And David said that. He said, man, I wish I had. And so his three hombres, they got, they went in and they break through, break through the enemy's land or the enemy's lines. They get him some water from this well. They bring the water back to him and say, David, we got you water from the well you wanted. And he said, this water isn't water. This water is your blood because it was purchased at the risk of their own lives. And David understood he didn't own his men. God did. And so he took that water and he poured it out on the ground, not to offend his men, but to honor his men by recognizing, you didn't serve me. You served your great king, God himself. But he did not pour out a drink offering of blood. It was a drink offering of water. And David said, I would never participate in the worship of these other gods because my God is the one true God and the one true God is God who is good, who is a treasure. I want to look at two verses, two sections of Scripture, one in Matthew and one in Jeremiah, showing us how God is a treasure and how we ought to recognize how this pull to worship other gods is true for all people who have ever lived. I want to look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 through 46, some of the shortest parables that Jesus told. Jesus connecting in with this idea that God and his kingdom is a treasure. Let me read them. You're very, very familiar with you. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had, and he bought it. So here's Jesus communicating the same idea about the kingdom of God as David is communicating about God and his kingdom. That is, it is a great treasure. And he used a, a fantastic way of thinking about the treasure of God. So a guy is walking across a field and he stumbles upon something that has tremendous value. It doesn't say what it was. Could imagine that there had been something placed there by someone in the long past, maybe a box half buried of gold or jewels or treasure of some kind. 
Maybe he fired his musket and it hit the ground and oil burst up and he and his family moved to Beverly Hills. <laughs> you don't know. I mean, anything could have happened. The younger kids are like, what is he talking about? You know, Google, Google it. A man named Jed or some such thing. So what he does is he discovers this is in the field. And what he knows by looking at whatever he found, the value of what is found in this field far surpasses the value of the field it resides in. So he makes sure not to disclose to anybody what is in this field. He decides to go and purchase this field. The only way he has means to do so is by liquefying the rest of his assets so that he can use the proceeds of the sale of all of his assets to purchase this land. A couple of things this means. Number one, if he is going to buy land not for sale, what do you have to do? You have to pay more to convince the person that you should buy it because the person doesn't have it for sale. So he now has to buy unlisted land for sale, which does mean he's going to have to offer a premium on the land. It also means this. He had to liquefy all of his assets, which means what? He takes a significant reduction on the value of his assets because he's selling them on the quick. So he is losing money on the sale and losing money on the purchase. And everybody in town says of this guy, what? You are an idiot. But when does everybody's mind change? When he reveals what's on the land. And now all of a sudden, what is he? The smartest guy who ever lived. Because he took all of his assets, which had much less value than what he found in the field. So this was not some kind of sacrifice for this guy, was it? He just took stuff that had little value and was able to, because of what he discovered, exchange it for that which has much greater value. And this is how David saw God in, in comparison with all the other things in his life, is God has such value, such treasure. Everything else is easily gotten rid of in light of the fact that I have this great treasure. In joy, he sells all he has to buy the field. Why? Because he has obtained something of such high value. And Jesus said, it is what the kingdom of God is like. God himself is such a treasure that everything else that could be had now has such low value. We are happy to merely have God himself. The, the second parable is similar to it. Verse 45 and 46, uh, there's a merchant and he went out in search of fine pearls. So he's going to other merchants and looking through the various stalls in a market area and he's looking at the areas where there are various objects for sale such as jewels and uh, gold and these kinds of things. He's looking for someone who is selling pearls and you could imagine him coming up to a stall and there's, there's a guy who's got pearls either laid out on a table or maybe even in a dish of some kind and he's sort of sorting through them and, uh, and he sees one. And what we know about this merchant is the same thing as he knows uh, about the, the, the guy who's walking across the field. He realizes he's looking at, this is a well, this guy doesn't know what he has. He goes, huh, how much do you take for this nasty old pearl? Right? Because he knows, he, once he sees it, he goes, oh my goodness, this guy has in the discount bin something that should be locked in the display case in the back. And he, and he sees it. So he recognizes immediately the value of it. And, he, and the guy says the price for it. And he goes, oh boy, that's a lot more than I got. He said, oh, okay, maybe I'll be, get it. And so he sneaks off and goes to the ATM. I realize there's no ATMs back then, stop it. And, and he says the same thing. He found a value, he went and sold all that he had to get this pearl. Why did he do that? Because he knew what he had found, the value of it far surpassed everything he owned. And by exchanging what he owned for this pearl, he vastly increased his treasure because he found this treasure. And Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Because the kingdom of God is God. And just like David, the goodness of God is this. God himself is a treasure. Treasure is found. Treasure is good. And, and, and David in Psalm 16 is saying, God is the greatest treasure. That's where this psalm starts. And that, that's where this psalm ends. The greatest treasure that can be found is God himself. Not God's stuff but God himself. He is the treasure David held close to his heart. God was the refuge. If he had God, he had a place to go of safety and rest. If he had God, he had everything he could ever need or want. 
But why did the people of Israel struggle with worshiping false gods? Because some of you, when you're reading through the Old Testament, you read about how they're stumbling into this this worship of false gods. Have you ever wondered as you're writing through the Old Testament, you're like, you know, I stumble in a lot of different ways, but I've never been walking down the street and stumbled into idolatry. You know, we, maybe we stumble in lots of, there are lots of things that we find tempting. Isn't it weird that people are so tempted to worship idols? We might have trouble relating with that. And I wanted to show you a section of the Old Testament which shows how the worship of false gods is universal and it's much more common than we might imagine. And the reason for it is very, very straightforward. So let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 16. I've got this section up on the screen. Let me give you the context. This is after Babylon had taken everybody in Judah captive. Jeremiah was left with a few remnants of people in uh, Israel or in Jerusalem nonetheless. And the people of Israel that were left in Jerusalem had decided to run to Egypt, which God said, don't do that. And they did it anyway. Jeremiah told them not to do that. They fled to Egypt, and because Jeremiah didn't want to go, they did what any reasonable group of people would do. They kidnapped him. They dragged him down to Egypt. And Jeremiah in Egypt gives them this warning that we're about to, or not this, he gave them this warning, and they responded in this way. His warning was, we need to worship the Lord and the Lord alone, and not all of these other gods. And they give this reason for disobeying God and worshiping other gods, beginning in verse 16. As for the word that you have spoken to us, Jeremiah, to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. We will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did. Both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah, and in the streets of Jerusalem. They're saying, we're going to keep worshiping the way we always have, worshiping the queen of heaven. Just like we used to do in Judah, we're going to keep doing that here in Egypt. Why? Because then, back then, when we worshiped the queen of heaven, what happened? We had plenty of food. We prospered. We saw no disaster. However, since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've lacked everything and we've been consumed by the sword and famine. Why do they want to worship the queen of heaven, this false god likely empowered by some demonic force? Why is it? Because she answers prayer. When we worship this queen of heaven, this false god, we have all the food we want, we have all the peace we want, we have all the prosperity we want, everything we could ever want, we get. What do you love about this new wife of yours, the queen of heaven? What are they saying? Her money. She gives us what we want. What did they dislike about God? He didn't seem as responsive. He didn't seem to step two as soon as they barked an order. He had the gall to act like he was God. Can you believe that? And that he had a better and different way than they might imagine. The reason we worship false gods is because we want something that solves real problems in real time. And as long as the one true God is willing to do that, we love that guy. As soon as he has the gall to act like God and do things his way and not our way, we will quickly abandon God to whatever will solve our real problems in real time. What Jeremiah wanted the people of Israel to understand and what David is imploring us to understand this, God is the goal. God is not the means to the goal. And that's the way a lot of us worship God. And that's the way the people of Israel worshiped God. And that's why they worshiped the queen of heaven because they weren't looking for God. What'd they want? They wanted God to give them their stuff. And David is saying in, in Psalm 16 in a very positive way, the same thing Jeremiah is saying in a negative way. God is not the means to what we want. What is it? God himself is the treasure. God is the treasure. I don't want to sound too crass, but let me say it to, this way. God isn't trying to be useful. God isn't trying to be handy. God is not the Swiss army knife of life's problems. By God's grace, he is compassionate enough and loving enough to hear us, right? 
But as long as God is merely the means to an end, we will always miss the treasure of who God is. That's what David is saying. The treasure he has in his life is he has God. That's the treasure he has in his life. The goodness of God is he himself is the treasure. That's verses 1 through 4. Let's look at uh, verses 5 through 11, if you don't mind. And you say, well, we'll let you know. Okay, let me know. The great thing about God, not only is he fantastic, he's a treasure. Of course, having a relationship with God is a significant privilege by the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. But the cool thing is God does bless, doesn't he? God does bless. He does hear prayer. He does answer. He does give us beyond what we ought to have. And the great thing about God's blessing is we praise him for the blessing he does give us because unlike other things in our life, which we might call a blessing, God's blessing to us is permanent. God's blessing to us never ends. So the goodness of the God on the one hand is that he is a treasure. The second good thing that's fantastic about God is we have in him an eternal inheritance. The difference between blessing we enjoy today and the blessing we will enjoy one day in the kingdom of God forever is the same as the difference between an invitation and actually going to the party. When you get the invitation, you're glad. You take joy in the invitation. It's a blessing to be invited and you get, the, you get to look forward to what's going to happen at the party. But getting the invitation is not the same as going to the party, is it? No, it's a different kind of blessing. Going to the party is the permanence. And this is where we understand the blessing of God. God's blessing is that what he gives us is forever. And the blessings he gives us here and now today are merely intended to be a hint, a foretaste of what is to come in the kingdom of God. So David defined blessing, the blessings he had in, in his life, as blessings from God that went far beyond merely an enjoyable life. He was looking forward to what God was doing in his life for all of eternity. And this is what the New Testament authors in the book of Acts picked up on. So let's look at it and see where he's going. Verses 5 and 6. Let me read them again. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You, referring to the Lord, hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So David here uses imagery from the conquest of Israel into the promised land in the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, chapters 13 through 21, it describes the dividing up of the promised land after Joshua, by God's hand, had conquered the land. So the land was, for the most part, conquered, and they began dividing up the land and giving it over to the tribes of, of Israel. And what, they, what the theme of that section of, of Joshua is, it's a theme of blessing. God is now granting to them an inheritance in the promised land, which comes from his hand alone. It's a blessing. God is, is blessing them with land. The promise he had made to the people of Israel is, I'm going to take you to the promised land, and, and you're going to live in houses you did not build. You're going to drink from cisterns that you did not dig. You will enjoy wine from vineyards you did not plant. And now it's happening. So what they would do is they would divide up the land. They had the, 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 the different tribes in different places. You had Asher over here. You had Ephraim over here. You had Gad over here. And you had, um, I don't know, what are the other tribes? Nephtali, gotcha, you didn't, you didn't guess that one. Judah, Benjamin, Simeon, and they would give them all these different lands. And what they would do is they had different sized land depending on how many people were in it. But at the end of the day, the way they divided up the land is they would cast the lot. So that was a, a game of chance where a rock or something was cast into a grid and wherever the stone landed would indicate where that particular tribe would get their inheritance because the people of Israel believed that the casting of Lot, the landing of the Lot, was determined by God. So they didn't feel they were doing it randomly. When the Lot was cast, they anticipated God himself was saying, here's where the land is for Judah or Naphtali or, or Ephraim. And so David is saying the same thing about his inheritance. The Lot was cast, and who is in charge of the Lot? Look what it says in verse 5. You hold my Lot, the Lord. The Lord holds my Lot. So he doesn't see anything in his life as chance. God himself is determining the things in his life that might seem like they're random. David tells him there's nothing random. There's nothing that's happening by happenstance. God is the one who determines the affairs of my life. And since he is doing it, where my life is, is good. 
And then describing, using that language from the book of Joshua, the lines have fallen for me in, in pleasant places. Not all the tribes of Israel said that. One of the tribes came to Joshua after the lot said where they were supposed to go, and they said, well, there's not enough room to uh, plant any crops. And, and Joshua, what are you talking about? You got this whole hill country up there. What's your problem? They said, well, that's forest. What Joshua say? Cut down the trees? I mean, this isn't complicated. You cut down the trees, plant your crops. And then what they say? Well, there's some bad guys up there, and they have chariots. Ooh. <laughs> and what Joshua say? No, conquer them. Why was Joshua? What's your problem? What's the problem with that comment? They didn't trust the Lord. They wanted, that, so the Lord gave them an inheritance. And what did they say? They would have written this psalm differently. The lines have fallen for me in crummy places. I have to chop down trees and conquer people with chariots. And Joshua wasn't having it. That's your inheritance. Suck it up, buttercup. Go get it. And we know from the book of Judges that they didn't. And they were conquered because they didn't tr trust the Lord. David, on the other hand, he says what? Oh, the, li oh, the lines have fallen for me in, in great places. Man, thank you, Lord. Now, don't make this mistake. When we're, we're listening to David say this, we assume he must just be talking about the good days. Have you read First and Second Samuel? He spends years running from Saul, living in caves. His entire family is kidnapped. He assumes they're dead. He is rejected by most. He, the king of the country tries to kill him on a number of occasions. So David here is not merely describing the good days. David is saying, of his life in the Lord, I'll take it. The lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. This is his expression that that which God has given me is just like the promised land to Israel. I am living in a house I did not build. I am drinking from a cistern I did not dig. And I enjoy the vineyard I did not plant. This is an expression of humility and trust in the Lord himself. Couldn't David have taken credit for everything he has? This is an expression of saying, there is nothing I have that I earned. Everything I have, God has given. And everything God has given, good days, bad days, medium days, are what? Pleasant places, because that's where the Lord is. He is my treasure. And what he has given me is a blessing. He is tying in his relationship with God and the blessing God has given him with the redemption of Israel. Remember, before Israel got to conquer the land, what happened? There were slaves in Egypt. God took the initiative to redeem them out of Egypt. The Bible tells us they were worshiping false gods in Egypt. God took the initiative to redeem them out of Egypt. He took the initiative to allow them to plunder the Egyptians. God took the initiative to let them cross the Red Sea. God is the one who fed the people of Israel for 40 years in the desert. They did not have to plant crops. God is the one, whenever they were invaded in the wilderness, they were never conquered. And God is the one who led them into promised land. And what, what David is saying, just like my people have been redeemed by God into his covenant promises, my life is a testimony of God redeeming me into his covenant promises. And so therefore, since God has redeemed me, the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. So this is the psalm of anyone who has been redeemed by God's covenant promises. Now you and I as believers today in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ participate in what the book of Hebrews says is greater covenant promises, a greater participation in the redemption of God because we have the risen son of God to look upon and trust. And so what does that mean for us that we should describe our life as? The lines for us have what? fallen in pleasant places, when everything's going great. No, just like David, even when things aren't. Because regardless of what's going on, God's blessing on us in his redemption, in his redemption through Jesus is forever. And it can't be taken away. So David uses this description of God's blessing in his life as an inheritance and a permanent inheritance that has come from God's hand. Look at verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David treasures 
more than anything else here is that God is with him. That's what he is treasuring, that God is near. God is with him. God is the one who gives him counsel. God is the one who gives him direction. God, David seeks the Lord and the Lord is near, not because David is worth it, but because God's love never fails. So David would go to the Lord, should I invade the Philistines? And God would say, yeah, go conquer the Philistines. And he did. The next time David said, should I go fight the Philistines? And God said, what? Sure, go fight them. But this time go the other way through the poplar trees. And when you get to the trees, hang out there for a minute. Then wait till you hear the sound of footsteps in the tops of the trees. That's the the angels going out before you. Once they go out, then you go out because then you will know I already beat them. So then you go out. Then he goes out to battle not against the Philistines, but much later in his life with the Philistines against King Saul. And the Philistines turn him away, say you can't go fight with us because you'll end up switching teams. So he and his men get sent back to their city of Ziklag. When they get back to Ziklag, they realize that the Amorites had invaded his city, burned it to the ground, and kidnapped all of their wives and their children. And his men, these mighty men who love him so much, they talked of what? Stoning him. That's how quick it switches, isn't it? Just like that. And so what did he do? Well, he got together a focus group to figure out what the people wanted do some marketing surveys to see what he needed to do to maintain, keep his power. No, what did he do? What did he do? He sought the Lord. And he said, Lord, should I, should I pursue the Amorites? Yeah. Is it the Amorites? Ammonites? Stalactites? I can't remember which one. <laughs> and what did the Lord say? Go get them. Go get them. So they chased them down. And they got everything back. The Lord gave him into his hand. And so what David is saying here is, is I treasure my, my connection with, with God. And this is the great contrast between David and King Saul. King Saul, because of his rebellion, wouldn't see God. And then when he did see God, God wouldn't answer because there was no relationship there. David, on the other hand, treasured more than his power, more than his might, more than his kingship, more than his money, more than his men, more than his military and his conquest. God is near. How do we know God, he treasured God above all else? David left everything to the building of the house of the Lord. David and his conquest was very successful. He got gold and jewels and silver and weapons and everything else. And most of that was dedicated to the Lord and given to the Lord into the tabernacle. But every warrior, David included, would receive from the plunder, plunder that was his And David, like all of his other warriors, would have received his own personal uh, section of the plunder. And at the end of his life, David was a very wealthy man. And if we read the Chronicles, the Chronicles is focused on the building of the temple, this remembrance of the Jews, of when the temple was built. And the Bible tells us this about David. When he was dying, when he was dying, he said, I give all of my personal treasure to the building of the Lord. He didn't give it to Solomon. Solomon was rich. Don't worry about him. David didn't give him his stuff. David said, the temple must be built. And so all of my personal belongings, I want to go to the temple because I want, it must be built. Now, keep this in mind. What did David want to do before he died? He wanted to build the temple. The Bible says he went and he said, I'm going to build the temple. And Nathan the prophet said, yeah, go do it. Then Nathan went home because Nathan forgot that check with God. And God said, hey, go back to the guy you talked to and tell him absolutely not. Uh, your son's going to do it. So what do we know about David? See, we know David, when he died, he gave away all of his stuff. What was he planning on doing? He was planning on dedicating his life to building the temple of God. Not because he wanted a big, shiny building. He didn't care about that. What did he care about? The presence of the Lord with his people. Because that was David's treasure. David's treasure was God himself. And what he says is those things which God has given are blessings, but not in and of themselves. Everything that today I might say is a blessing in my life, in David's life, in your life, is supposed to tell us this kind of God that would be this kind to me has something better for me at another place, an eternal place, the place where we're, we're headed. And that's where David takes us in verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Why? Why is he secure? Verse 10. 
you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures for how long? Forevermore. So the culmination for David is knowing that death does not stop his relationship with God. The culmination of his relationship with God is David says, the grave's got nothing on me. The, you, the grave will, that's what Sheol means. Sheol is a reference to, the, to death, the grave. And David says, no, I'm going from here to there. You won't let me see corruption. I, I'm, I, am, I have an anticipation of an unending enjoyment of God's presence. Verse 11, you make known to me the paths of life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The stuff here, his blessing here in this life was not forevermore. When does the blessing of this life end? That's not a trick question. It's when you die. That's it. That's it. You're shut down. Everybody dies. We've mentioned this before because some of you still don't believe me. The mortality rate of this planet is 100%. This place is a dangerous place to live. And then from here, what's next? David says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put my hope. I'm going to put my refuge. I'm going to put all I am on what is permanent, forevermore. David, in a sense, is saying what Jesus echoes later. I'm going to take the life God has given me here, my skills, my gifts, my abilities, my stuff, and I want to convert that into forevermore kind of stuff. And that's what David says. God has made known to him the presence of life. The goodness of God. God himself is a treasure, no, no doubt about it. But more than that, God gives us an eternal inheritance that we participate in by faith. I want to look at the two places this psalm is referenced, at least two of them. In the book of Acts, it's there, this psalm is quoted by both Peter and the Apostle Paul. Let's start with Peter in Acts chapter 2. Verse 25, Peter is preaching a sermon which is much shorter than this one. And we'll understand here how Peter understands Psalm 16 in relationship to the risen Savior. This, I'm, I'm going to start in verse 22. It's up on, up on the screen, but we'll get to it. Uh, yeah. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. This Jesus... Delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed. Jesus, given to you by God, you killed him. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it's not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. So this is where Peter says, David talking about Jesus who was yet to come. This is Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my, whole to, my soul to Hades. Uh, Peter uses Hades instead of Sheol because Peter has this habit of quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and so he uses the Greek word for the grave, Hades, instead of the Hebrew word, Sheol. I know too much information. You're welcome. <laughs> that one's free. You will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 29. Brothers, I will say to you with confidence about David. Are you ready? He's dead. Thank you, Captain Obvious. He says he's dead. We know where his grave is. So if David knew he wouldn't die, who was he talking about since he's dead? And Peter tells us, way down in verse 34, David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says of Jesus, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make enemies, your enemies, your footstool. Here's how he finishes his sermon on Psalm 16. Let Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus you crucified. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, what do we do? 
if this Jesus is risen from the dead, since this Jesus is risen from the dead, not only was Jesus risen from the dead, David told them Jesus would rise from the dead. And Peter is standing there saying, remember in Sunday school when you learned about Psalm 16, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. I saw him do it. And there's 200 people with me. We've talked to him. We've seen him. You killed him. He's not dead. He's coming back. You might want to figure that situation out. And they said, what do we do? And what Peter said, your host, sorry. No, he didn't. He said, trust Jesus. He is risen. He is the one David was talking about. He is the one who gives us the new covenant of life. When we trust the risen Savior, he forgives us of our sin up to and including our role in crucifying him. Paul also preaches a similar kind of sermon over in Acts chapter 13. I know what you're saying. He said, this is cheating. You get one passage a week, Greg, and you've switched it into three. Yeah, I can do whatever I want. I'm, actually, I can. So here we go. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 35. The apostle Paul, after his conversion, obviously, therefore, he says, that is David in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Quoting from Psalm 16, again, same psalm that Peter quoted from, same psalm we were looking at this morning. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Jesus is the fulfillment of David's psalm in Psalm 16. The way in which we participate in the eternal inheritance is through faith in Jesus Christ. Walking across an empty field, the treasure we have found is Jesus, is what he's telling us. Walking through the merchant's stalls and we stumble upon the fantastically valuable pearl. It's Jesus. And we have the same refuge in Christ that David talked about in the Lord. And the goodness of God is this Christ, our Savior, God in the flesh, he is a treasure in and of himself. Having found Christ, we have found treasure because Christ is raised. But more than that, Jesus doesn't merely become our treasure, although that is enough, isn't it? He also grants all those who are in him by faith an eternal inheritance. So like David, we know that death doesn't have any problems for us. That's just the doorway to what our life is meant to be. We have and the eternal inheritance, the goodness of God. He's a treasure. He's enough. But because he's so great, he also gives us an eternal inheritance, a blessing forever. Let me end with just a couple of things for you to file away in the back of your mind. I always look for opportunities to be annoying. And, uh, and you say, oh, no, we're there. We don't need to try. Okay. Question for you. What is God looking for in redeeming us? Why does God redeem people like us? What does God gain from it? Have you ever thought about that? What's God get out of it? Well, here's the short answer. He gets nothing he doesn't already have. He's God. Everything he is is full and complete. God does not gain anything from getting us. What he obtains is what he wants, and what he wants is relationship with us. He already has everything he needs, everything he could possibly desire. All creation already belongs to him. Everything is his. So he does not seek relationship with us because we bring anything he doesn't already have. You know, so he is never going to respond uh, to someone who might ask him, why do you have a relationship with these people? He's not going to say because of their money, not because of their gifting, because he already has all the stuff. He already has all the gifting. The only reason he is having a relationship with us because he wants relationship with us. The question is, what are we looking to gain from relationship with God? If what he has in having a relationship with us is what? Relationship with us. Are we looking to have a relationship with him for the same reasons? Or do we have other reasons for why we would want relationship with God? Maybe we would talk about a relationship with God the way the people of Israel in Egypt would talk about a relationship with God. Well, when, when I see God and I pray and I do what I think he wants, my life goes good. 
And when I don't do the things he wants, my life seems to go bad. Well, that means you're not seeking a relationship with God. You're seeking his stuff. And David says, no, what's the treasure? What does Psalm 16 tell us the treasure is? It's God through his son, Jesus Christ. This sounds rude, but I'll say it. Maybe because it sounds rude. God doesn't need us. But he wants to have enjoyable relationship with us. Isn't that incredible? God doesn't need us, but he wants to have relationship with us defined by us worshiping him by trusting him. That's the right terms of our own relationship. He is glorified when we trust him as worshipers. And he wants us to choose him. And he allows people to not choose him. But nonetheless, he desires, he desires you. He doesn't need your stuff, doesn't need your personality, doesn't need your gifting. I, I don't know if I can say this. He doesn't need your obedience. Like he won't die if you disobey. He doesn't lose if you disobey. He wants you to obey because he knows what's best for you. He doesn't need us. He wants relationship with us. What Psalm 16 is imploring us to do is engage with him in relationship for, for the same reason. Not to get other things, but instead to find God. That we gain him. That's the treasure of relationship with us. One, a couple other things. Many of us, by God's grace, we've enjoyed fantastic blessing in our life. We've enjoyed uh, family and friendships and uh, significant vocation. Maybe God has provided for us material resources we need or maybe even beyond what we need. And, and we've experienced something that we might describe in our life, whatever it might be for, uh, we would say these things are blessings. We enjoy them and, and we're grateful for God for them. And what do we have to understand about God and his eternal inheritance? It's this. Everything we have here from God as a blessing is merely intended to be a foretaste of what is to come. We always want to think about, this is a preview of coming attractions. All the blessings of this life are, are at best temporary. And the, and the a way to think about them is what I described before. Merely the invitation, the reminder the real party is yet to come. And so what we tend to do is, we, what we ought to do is as we experience blessing by God's joy is let's just hold, hold those things a little bit more loosely. Not put our whole selves into the things of this world, but a willingness to enjoy what God has given. But when he removes, we're not done. We're not over because our hope is in another place. Lastly, this, we have to end with this, and this is why it's so cr critically important. The Bible tells us, and we believe that Jesus is raised from the dead as a historical fact. David predicted. Peter saw it. The Apostle Paul saw it. Hundreds of others saw it. This is the one reality. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical reality that gives us hope for the fact that the grave has nothing on us and that we have a hope that never ends. The apostles agreed this psalm predicted the Messiah's resurrection. They had an eye on the resurrection. This is what you need to understand about how the apostles behaved in Luke and Acts about the resurrection. Is Peter and the apostle Paul, when they finally understood and believed Jesus was raised from the dead, everything they thought and every way they lived their life did a 180 degree turn. And guys who were living to save their own skin up until the moment of the crucifixion gladly rode into their own death once they recognized Jesus is raised from the dead. And this is what David is calling us to do in Psalm 16 and what the apostles are calling us to do in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13 is recognize since Jesus is raised from the dead, our life should fundamentally change. Number one, if you don't know Christ, you should have forgiveness of your sins by trusting him to forgive you. And finally, you live your life without all that shame, guilt, and regret. But as believers, maybe we need to rethink of what we're living for and where our hopes lie. And maybe many of our hopes and dreams and aspirations are too short-term. We're merely hoping and dreaming and aspiring for things over the next 20, 30, and 40 years instead of aspiring, dreaming, and hoping for things that will never end. And Psalm 16 calls us 
to worship God in his goodness because he's a treasure and because we have an eternal inheritance. Join me as we pray. God, we thank you for your goodness and your greatness and your kindness. God, we recognize that we don't really understand how good you are. Obviously, we don't, Lord. Our lives would be dramatically different if our eyes were truly open to the goodness of our Savior. But Lord, in this moment, we ask your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the glory of our risen Savior. And we would allow the Word of God to reinform our priorities and our values and finally recognize the true treasure we have gained in this world is faith in Jesus Christ and relationship with you. God, forgive us for how much of our life in you has been lived trying to gain your things. And instead, Lord, allow us to see what it looks like to live a life for you where we recognize what we have gained is you. We have relationship with you. You are near. You hear. And you have given us redemption, new life, and forgiveness of sin. And God, I would pray for those who are here who don't know you that in this moment they would see your glory, your goodness. And they would come to you in faith recognizing that they need forgiveness of sin. The rebellion against you has ruined your relationship with them and their relationship with you, but that can be mended by trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. And so we pray even now in the quietness of our hearts, you would move us to trust Jesus for forgiveness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you, God, that we do not worship you for this life alone. We seek you because we have our life yet to come. And God, would you give us strength to endure for your glory to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up and we'll close with a song.